Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, episode 12. I am Adam Pawatic, and my co-host is Aaron Cameron. Our sponsor is, as always, First National. We've got a guest here today. It's Chris Potter. He's a partner at PwC Canada. He's also leader of the Canadian Real Estate Tax Practice and leader of the GTA Private Company Services Real Estate Practice. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you very much, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming. I, I love the title. It's uh, it's, it's quite long and uh, <laughs> very impressive. I aspire to have that yeah. that that type of expertise one day. Yeah. Well, don't be too impressed. It still <laughs> cost me four bucks for a coffee at Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, so today we're we're here to talk about a report that PwC and ULI uh, co-produce. PwC, of course, is PricewaterhouseCoopers. ULI is the Urban Land Institute. It's the Emerging Trends in Real Estate for 2017. I was first exposed to this at the Toronto presentation back in, I believe, uh, November. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. It reached out. Thank um, you. But there is uh, another event coming up for anybody in the the Ottawa market that will be presented there as well. So if you like what you hear today, we're not covering even anything close to the entire content. So it's definitely worth worth going to. Um, but yeah, Chris, can you tell us anything about the 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 Ottawa Ottawa presentation? Just for people. Yeah, when is it? You know where it is? It's February eighth uh, in the Ottawa market. This is the first time that uh, emerging trends. Uh, will be brought uh, to that city and uh, looking forward to a great turnout and the start of good things uh, to happen in the future. I think ULI is anxious to uh, see a presence develop in that market. Um, we have a lot of great uh, things going on there and people that we do work with, so uh, we're interested to support that and uh, see what develops going forward. Chris, let's start with just when did you start working for PwC? How did you get involved in real estate? Let's, let's start from the beginning, just do a quick sort of synopsis of who you are and how you got here. Okay. I started with the firm in 1985, so I've been there for wow. over 31 years. And I started advise. I've been advising real estate companies, both public and private, for 28, 29 years now. Uh, my clients are in all aspects of real estate, every sector: inbound investment, domestic investors, developers, uh, uh, the full the full spectrum. Hmm. So did you start in real estate back back in 1985? I started in real estate really in 1988. Okay. And one of uh, it was a combination of sort of investing or not getting involved with family-owned real estate organizations that were covering a number of different sectors in real estate. And back then I also got involved in structuring and dealing with tax shelters. Um everything from sort of the uh, you might remember, well, I mean, actually you guys probably wouldn't remember, but you might have heard about, uh, you know, the various syndications that were done, real estate focused, including sort of apartment buildings in Houston and uh, uh, office and, and other industrial type properties uh, in Calgary and different markets and uh, putting those things together. Neat. Off topic a little bit, but it, but you sparked my, my memory. You probably weren't surprised by this Toronto Star article that came out a couple of days ago, you know, claiming Canada is the biggest tax haven. And, you know, it's got the it's a Cayman Islands, but a, but with a positive light because Canada is such a reputable place. I mean, um, and then real estate was mentioned in that article as well as being a great source for these investors from offshores. There's been a lot of interest in Canada from a real estate investment perspective over the last number of years. Look, if you take a look, even going back to the crisis in 08-09, Canada came out pretty much unscathed, and you guys would know that firsthand given your business. You know, the markets continued on. There was a bit of a slowdown for a few months yeah. while everybody figured out what was happening. But if you take a look at the overall market, 
we did very well, and it comes down to stability, both in our financial markets as well as politically and economically more broadly. And I think we attracted a lot of attention. We're a long way into this cycle. Um, I don't think anybody really expects that it's going to end anytime soon. There's caution on the horizon, but it's you know I think that's that's one of the hallmarks of the industry now is there's a maturity and a way of approaching the business that is a lot different than it was if you go back to the late '80s, early '90s. Contrast that with what happened in the rest of the world in 08, 09, and there was a lot of pain. You look at the way the markets dropped in the U.S., in the U.K., in much of Europe, and I think that uh, we started to become a little bit more attractive um, from a global perspective as a destination for capital uh, to take advantage of the fact that we do have stable markets and we do have a stable economy and a stable political system. Do you think that stability was sort of the main one of the main factors that we didn't have the same kind of decline that most of the rest of the you know first world experience? I think it was the strength. It, it, yes, the short answer is yes. I think that you know understanding why, uh, and even some of the differences in in the U.S. market and around home ownership, and what happens when somebody wants to buy a house, and what it means to have a mortgage and qualify for a mortgage in Canada as opposed to in the United States. So understanding more of the fundamentals, uh, I think people as they started to take a look at it, we heard loud and clear all over the place around the stability of Canada, the stability of our environment, and it's safe and secure, and so it's it's attracted a lot of interest. The uh, the downside, of course, is in in good times, people don't like stability. It's when things go sideways that they say, thank God we're in a safe environment. No, you're absolutely right. And if you take a look at the U.S. in the last few years, obviously it's been a, a lot more of an opportunistic play. So people looking for opportunistic type returns have been looking there. But you know what? People are still looking for allocation to Canada in the context of dealing with that safe and secure, stable return. Interestingly, we also see more interest from international investors in getting involved in our development markets and development projects. The cap rate compression that we've seen, uh, and I think even in the report, you'll you'll find that the industry is expecting that there will still be a little bit more cap rate compression, but not a lot. The growth in the growth in value in your real estate holdings in Canada now are largely going to be driven from running your business well. Um, whereas, you know, historically there has been a fair bit of compression. As a result of that, people bringing their money into the country looking for good returns are still looking to get risk-adjusted better returns, and so they're focusing more on development opportunities. I think the REITs have taken on the same strategy as well. They, uh, they're getting return from purchasing stabilized assets at five caps, so they need to, to build to juice up their returns. No, that's absolutely right. I mean, and, and if you remember, going back a couple of years, uh, they had a hard time getting into the market. So dealing with accretion uh, and dealing with uh, growing their portfolios had to come from internal intensification, internal improvement, and looking... And at- they're sitting on a ton of excess land too, right? So, well, that's absolutely correct. And you know, you you're developing with free land costs, so to speak, it makes it a much more attractive investment. Well, and if you look at certain types of REITs, some of the more established ones, more mature REITs, they do have some redevelopment opportunities. Mm-hmm. They have intensification opportunities. Some of them have been a little more forward in some of their announcements around intensifying around uh, condominium and purpose-built rental, for yeah. example. Yeah. You want to talk about the uh, report itself? Yeah, that, while we're yeah. here, yeah. So, it, yeah. And just, we will put a link on the website for anybody who wants to read it. Uh, get access to it. Yeah. I, I, this is this is a great sort of segue because we did a year in review podcast uh, earlier this month. So now we're kind of we look backwards for the year. Now we're going to look forwards and 
you know make not necessarily predictions, but at least you know use so the survey that that was conducted and and um, try to drive to see if we can figure out or at least talk about what what may what may lie in the future. Um, so let's start there, uh, Chris. What what was the, the the approach to the survey, or you know what who are the experts that you're that you're interviewing, and and what's the what's the process? So this publication, we've I guess this this report is the thirty eighth year in print. Uh, and the, the process and the approach has been fairly consistent over all of those years. My involvement with it goes back 10 or 12 years, and I was part of uh, bringing the publication more formally to Canada. So this is the 10th report that has has a chapter focused directly on Canada. We were sort of, before that, we were sort of buried in with everything else. And I think recognized that there was... Uh, significance to this market and deserved to, and, and I think history has shown that uh, <laughs> that we do, that we we earned that uh, that recognition. The focus and the approach has been to do two things. We have a survey that gets sent out more broadly to all aspects of the industry, whether it's public, private, in whatever sector within real estate, uh, and whether you're lending into it, providing equity into it, whether you're developing or investing. Um, so we have a broad swath of the industry represented. And in fact, if you look at the back of the publication, it will summarize for you all of the folks that were interviewed on a face-to-face basis, which is the second piece, is we supplement the electronic surveys with a fairly large number of sitting down face-to-face with key people in the industry across the country, in Canada's case, and certainly across the U.S. for for that portion, and getting their views on what the trends are, where they see the markets going, how they expect their business to do, and to get a little bit more depth as to where they see things going and how they expect the markets to, uh, the market to, uh, to evolve. Any sense of how many people you send the survey to and what responses you get back or what the sort of hit rate is? Um, I could come back to you with some more specific information. We do get good response from the industry. Uh, we're very well known in the industry, and we're, we're very thankful for that. I think that uh, uh, our feedback is consistently positive. People like, to, uh, like to, to get our report. They like to contribute to the report. Uh, in terms of a face-to-face um, survey, we would sit down in Canada with uh, 80 to 90 people. It oh, wow. sort of fluctuates um, anywhere from sort of the, the 80 to 100 threshold um, across the country in all of the major markets and a number of the secondary markets. Well, if you look on the, the inside page, it uh, lists everybody credited with participating from uh, PwC and ULI. And it's a long list of people, so I know this must be a just a... Uh, it's a year-long project, yeah, I'm sure, right? You're already starting for 2018 trends. We, we it's, it's interesting. We actually do sit down sort of earlier, sort of mid-spring, and start to take a look at, um, you know, what the questions are in the survey, and, um, both face-to-face and online, and sort of laying things out. But the survey itself is done over the course of the summer. It starts sort of June, July, and gets wrapped up in terms of the interviews and, and surveys in sort of the August time frame. Uh, then the writing happens, sort of in the August September time frame, um, goes to print, and we're and this last year we released the uh, it was it was formally released in the U.S. the end of October. We did a press release in Canada the end of October, and then we had our formal launch in Toronto uh, early November. I'd have to I'd have to think obviously that was pre Trump's election, so I imagine that the results you're going to get next year might be noticeably different in terms of uh, market perception as compared to this last year. Now well, that the world shifted. Well, if you think about the timing. Uh, 
It's a, it's an interesting point, and it's come up a couple times. And I know that we have sort of reached out, you know, both my my colleagues in in the U.S. Uh, and 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 I and some of the folks in Canada have certainly reached out and sort of said, you know, but is there really much different now versus where we were in in sort of the summer? Uh, the answer is not really. Probably um, some optimism. Well. Cautious optimism, that's a good way to put yeah. it, I think. And if you look at, uh, uh, without getting political, I think that, um, you know, by the time we were doing this in the summer, where things were going in the United States were was certainly in question. Um, one of the things, uh, one of the sections in terms of uh, reporting back on what we heard has to do with global uncertainty. And certainly what was top of mind um, throughout the process and talking to people was the impact on world events. And I think that that actually contributes to uh, the overall theme of cautious optimism in, in Canada. I think people are mindful of the fact that we're long in the cycle. Uh, it's I think, probably unprecedented to have gone as long as we have um, without a major correction in Canada. But the cycle is long, but the fundamentals are good. People are feeling good about their businesses. What's caused them to be a little bit concerned, um, affordability and the fact that you know we are seeing markets get ahead of rise in real wages in many respects, but also that global uncertainty aspect, looking at Brexit, looking at what's happening around the world, looking in, in in particular the you know what's going on in the United States and concerned about what at the time the concern was all right what is going to happen with this election what does it mean so yeah. do you get the sense that the belief really is that the the, the Canadian uh, cycle will be disrupted not from internal forces but external forces is that is that really what the uncertainty or the the concern is coming from I, I think that's right I think in in large part I think there's a healthy dose of not skepticism, but you know, awareness. I think that's really you know, if I if I were to look look around, I think that Canadians generally, and certainly in this market spec market segment, uh, real estate industry players are very aware. They're aware of what's going on in the world. They're aware of what's going on in their markets, and and I think an awareness of where we are, um, and in particular what's happening in the world around us. We can't. None of us are going to forget easily what happened in 07, 08, 09, uh, when we did have a financial crisis and the impact. Um, that was felt around the world, and so yeah, we dodged a bullet. And I think you know, thank thank goodness for our our environment. It sort of kept us a little bit safer than others. But a recognition that something that happens around the world could have a direct impact on our markets here. The the black swan on a on a world stage, yeah, exactly. That, uh, you can't see coming, of course. It is interesting if I well, I think about it. The the references to the early '90s seem to be more frequent these days. You know, from the guys that were around back then, saying you know, especially looking at all the young guys and, and in that time frame and what's that you know twenty twenty some odd years ago now that that a lot of people that are in the in the real estate industry that have never really experienced uh, a correction. It's always been gravy, right? Cap rates have been compressing, rents have been going up. It's always been a fairly you know, simple, for lack of a better word, you know, fairly simple market. But at, for, to your point, there's this cautious sort of, you know, you know be prepared because it, it is going to happen or, you know, it likely will happen at some point. Do you, do you believe that to be true? I, I think everybody believes that to be true. And, and I think that's part of the recognition. I mean, we can sit down and look at the underlying fundamentals all we want and we can feel good that the fundamentals continue to look good. If you think about the drivers, even on the residential side, you know, good jobs, uh, constant immigration and population growth sort of feeding a need for places to live. 
Uh, everybody at the same time is saying, well, hang on, fewer, fewer and fewer people are able to afford that. So what's going to happen? Are we going to hit price, price fatigue? Are we going to hit a wall? Is something going to happen? Um, you know, there's concerns, of course, coming with the new administration and what that's going to mean from a trade perspective. Is that going to affect jobs? Mm-hmm. So all of these things, I think, roll into it. So I think the broader awareness and recognizing that there are other factors that are perhaps out, you know, largely out of our control that might have an impact on how our businesses do and understanding sort of why we're where we are. And you, you raise an interesting point that has come up a lot. Uh, there is a whole generation of people in this industry that have never seen a downturn. Yeah. You, you could know. be vice president of a company by now. They've never seen. Yeah, you started in the mid '90s. You've been yeah. working for 20 years, and yeah, now you're running a running a real estate investment firm. But you've never actually experienced you've never, hard times. You've yeah. never had to really deal with hard times. You've had, if you think about even an interest rate environment, and any of us that are a little bit longer in the tooth certainly remember interest rates in double digits. Mm-hmm. Um, you've again got a whole generation of people that have grown up with single digit and and at that low single digit interest rates. And have not had to deal with. Uh, you mean an interest rates haven't been, you know, level of inflation for the, the history, right? Like, <laughs> or subinflation yeah. in some cases, right? Well, we do CMHC, you know, at least a couple months ago, there was CMHC five year insured product, or, you know, mortgage rates that were started with a one, right? Like your five year, you know, we do large million dollar financings and the interest rate was one something, right? Well, my first mortgage was at 11 and a quarter percent. And my wife and I bought another house a few years later. And you probably thought that and was good because that was coming off of 18, 19 percent years say, before that, we, probably, right? We were thrilled with the, we bought another house and the build, we bought a new house and the builder bought the mortgage rate down to 10 percent. We were over the moon. My, uh, my dad's a, you know, been a 40 year developer. And so I was speaking with him about debt and I said, that's great for, for investments. He goes, no, you know, back in my day, it was negative leverage. It was not, it's not this gift to return that it is, is today. Well, certainly the, the environment is different. And, and, you know, it's interesting going back the last several years, everybody, you know, and, and the results in the face-to-face discussions were all the same. Well, we know interest rates are going up. Don't know when, and sort of everybody, if you were to go to even at the forum, you know, they have sort of those question answer things and you push the button. And a lot of folks were saying, oh, yeah, sometime in the next couple of years, we know interest rates are going up. Well, then it hasn't. And so I think the last couple of years, when we start talking about the economy, about interest rates and where things are going, I think there's a larger recognition that, you know what, this just may be the new normal. You know, first and foremost, is if you think about it, you know, it, it's, it's not that it doesn't matter in real estate. You need to sort of be aware of it in a broader context. But you sort of work with it. Deals were done when interest rates were in the double digits. Deals are being done today. Deals will be done tomorrow. I think what everybody is concerned about is that if there is going to be a movement in interest rate, that it be slow and controlled rather than quick. And, well, and and it's interesting. I mean, to that point, the government of Canada bond went from 60 basis points to 120 basis points, you know, not overnight, but over the span of sort of 8 to 12 weeks. And it, it was it didn't even it wasn't really news. People were kind of just it, okay, yeah, of course, but that doesn't impact anything because sixty basis points rise interest rates just doesn't move the dial anymore. Right? Well, it doesn't move the dial, but the overnight bank rate um, from the Bank of Canada is one thing. The real issue is what is it doing to what is it doing to mortgage rates? And if you're not seeing that same sort of real quick overnight movement, then okay, from a practical perspective, it's interesting. Um, but what you're really thinking about is, is there a longer term trend coming from this? And what does it mean when I go to renew or when I go to do that next deal? Yeah, and and, and you know, as of today, anyway, I think, you know, four months ago, average mortgage spreads for, for term product were about 200 to 220 for your sort of A, a asset. Uh, and we're seeing now is 170 to 180. So people have moved their spreads down, uh, you know, not quite one to one with the relations to the increase in the bond rate, but 
mortgage rates have not really been impacted by the by the change in the bond rates. It cuts the movement in half essentially when you. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so let's let's move on. I, I really encourage any other listeners out there to go to our website uh, and open the open the attachment and read this read this report. It's really really fascinating. And what one of the one of the aspects one of the things that I find interesting is you've done a great job of kind of carving up the Canadian market into into the um, sort of the major urban centers. And we before we before we hit record on the podcast, we were talking about how the Toronto Vancouver versus the other impact and um, the regulations and the and the, the the changes that are being made and how yes they're geared towards the the two hot markets but that doesn't necessarily reflect Canada at large no I think that's right and and you know this really sort of falls in the in in the category of affordability which I don't think you've been able to pick up a newspaper in this country for the last several years without seeing a lot talked about and if you think about the earlier years it was always you know there our markets are in a bubble there's going to be a huge crash you know doom and gloom um, and that was sort of in the same vein as interest rates are going to go back up. They're going to go up really fast and everybody's going to be left holding the bag. And of course, as we know, that has not happened. But when you look at affordability more broadly, first and foremost, you know, you have to look at affordability in a couple of different contexts. I think every urban center has issues around unfortunate people that, that need support for public housing. And that's really a different category. More broadly, when they're looking at affordability and, 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 and what's happening with the price of homes, if you take... Vancouver and Toronto out of the analysis, the story is very, very different. There's been huge appreciation in those markets, and we can talk a little bit about what's driving that, But and, and, and the story largely is supply. We'll come back to that maybe. But when you look around at the other markets, we have not seen the same appreciation. We've not seen the same, seen the same concerns. Having said that, when the government makes policy changes, um, whether it's whether it's dealing with CMHC uh, insurance requirements or the whole issue around sort of sharing risk uh, and downloading the financial institutions to the extent that they make it more difficult for the younger folks or anybody to get into the market. It affects all of the markets. And so when you talk to people in some of the secondary markets or some places outside of Toronto and Vancouver, those policy changes have the same impact in those markets and, and have the same effect of taking potential buyers out of the market. So the question then is, what is the impact on that market? And equally important, where do they live? Are you pushing them back into rentals? And what does that do to the rental stock in that area? Even in the Toronto-Vancouver context, which historically have had very low rates of vacancy in, in, in purpose-built rentals, for example, you're now just putting more pressure on them finding a place to live where they're not owning. And the concern, of course, is pumping up or pushing up rental rates, which in a broader context affects affordability in that tier of people that are not able to buy homes. Yeah, you know, prevalent throughout the report, at least the, the, the section on Canada was, you know, many of these experts were really talking about how this is a supply issue, not a demand issue. And, and, and I think pointing the finger at, at some of the processes and the time it takes to get, um, to get the supply online. And, and that's very true. I think there hasn't, I don't think there's been enough of that really discussed and examined in the media. Uh, and, and I think you have to be careful how you discuss it. There are some organizations that have come out and said there's no supply issue. There's lots of land available in the GTA um, to take us out you know, decades, and so it's really not a supply issue. But that sort of misses the broader point. The broader point is that I don't think anybody in the industry would argue that in terms of raw acreage of land, yes, there is acreage of land 
and it'll be there, and we can develop on it. The problem is... <laughs> we have lots of it in Canada, fact, we, right? We, yeah. we, we do, we do. And, and uh, uh, when you look at the land mass versus our population, that just tells the whole story. But the reality is, and this is something that is surprising, um, and it's not new for um, this survey, we've heard this for years, there isn't, I don't think there's really any markets across the country where you don't have the development community saying that we have a problem with getting our land entitled and released and properly serviced and ready to go, that the entitlements process is taking longer, that there are issues with the way the governments are and, and sort of where policy is leading things around intensification, for example, versus what the markets actually want. And that, in large part, is what's driving the issue. It's not a matter, um, it's, not, it's not as simple as we have foreign purchasers coming in here and driving up yeah, real estate yeah. prices. That, that, that's a very simplistic uh, way of looking over, at it. And heavily oversimplistic. Heavily yeah. oversimplistic. It's one small aspect. It's not the aspect. And so when you take a look at what that really means, and, and, and intensification is an area that I think bears, bears understanding and what it means. You have a market and you have a large portion of the market that's looking for single-family detached homes. Well, government policy is driving more to higher densities, mid and high densities. If you look even in a Toronto context and look at price appreciation, I think you would conclude that the, the condo sector of the market has not seen the same price appreciation, for example, as single-family detached homes. Why is that? If you, if you just stick back to basic economics, supply and demand, if it's in balance, then you're not going to see the price swings. Clearly, there's a balance issue there. And I think that that's something that needs to be investigated. Now, government policy has evolved. And without commenting on whether that's good or bad policy, the reality is that policy decisions have implications. And when you work through the implications, if you have a large segment of the market that is still focused on one sector, like single-family detached homes, and you don't have enough of them available to meet the demand, it's going to put the prices up. So there are some compounding or, or, or there, there's some perhaps uh, consequences coming out of that. So prices have been increasing. And so one of the other things that we've seen, I think, is a fairly significant decline in the number of listings for resale houses. Why? Because if you're going to sell your home, unless you're ready to downsize or get out of the market completely, where are you moving to and at what price? And so I think the officials in, in, in Toronto would tell you that there's been a significant increase in 2015 in the applications for renovations building permits for people to mm -hmm. renovate their existing homes. And you're going to see a lot more of that. I haven't seen the numbers for 2016 yet, but the speculation was that it was going to be significantly larger again over 2015. And we're seeing it all over the place. And I suspect the same in Vancouver. I know you drive around the neighborhoods there. There's a lot of sort of bungalow homes that have been topped up, right? I think that that's why I moved to a bigger house when I can just add a second floor to the existing home. Right? That's right. Or even if you are living in an older home, knock it down and build what you want. Yeah. I live out in Etobicoke, and you can see that... Uh, the classic, uh, for those not from Toronto, Tobacco's a suburb uh, built, I guess, in the, the 50s and 60s. And so the, the typical Tobacco style is this single-story single story, uh, home, kind of sprawls all over a piece of land. Now, uh, developers coming in, bulldozing those and putting up uh, you know miniature mansions right to the lot line and really changing the uh, landscape of that uh, neighborhood. Yeah, and I think that's accelerating across the city. I think it's going to continue to accelerate. Uh, there is another aspect that I think uh, needs to weigh into the discussion, and that is if you take a look at Toronto and Vancouver, we are attracting attention in a world or global context, and we are being compared and, and, and consistently come up as among the better places to live in the world, and that is also contributing to attracting capital. And if you look at us on a relative basis, 
both size of accommodation and cost of accommodation, we compare quite favorably. There was an interesting chart in in the report about um, size, average square footage of the typical house. Do you want to comment on that? I found that that really interesting. That's actually, that is my favorite chart out of the whole, one of my favorite charts out of the whole publication because I think it tells a really great story. Um, And as it happens, I was in, uh, I was in Asia uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, I spent some time in Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong and uh, some of the other smaller centers um, close by there. And it's, it's interesting. I saw an ad for a new condo development. And the starting size, now they talk about square meters, they don't talk about square feet. The starting sizes, it started at 20 square meters or just under 200 square feet. Yeah, that's not surprising at all. As a unit size in a condominium project. I don't have it in front of me, but it, it just for, for listeners, they can kind of conceptualize what we're talking about. Australia was number one at something like 1,200, 1,300 square feet as the average home. Is that, that, that no, about no, no, right? No, 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 I'm going to jump in here. Okay. So, so I, I, like I said, I love that chart. Yeah, so sure. you're right. Australia, U.S., and Canada are the top three. And if you take a look at how that breaks down and understand that that chart measures the average living space for a family in various countries around the world and cities around the world. Is that single family homes only or is that incorporate condos? It incorporates everything. Average living space for a family. And in Canada, when you when you look at that, Australia, U.S., Canada, we're in sort of the north of 2,000 square feet, between 2,000 and 2,500 square feet. That's the average. And at the bottom of the chart, when you get down to China, Hong Kong, Russia, uh, I think Hong Kong was under 500 square mm-hmm. feet. China and Russia were in the neighborhood of 500 square feet. Yeah, and Japan was shortly there at 700, 600 square feet. Um, well, you used to live uh, in South Korea. How big was your place, uh, Aaron? Not very big. No, but that but that's by virtue that's a that's a landmass in my mind anyway. Part of that is a landmass, just land availability. I mean, you know, certainly Hong Kong and Japan, it's just a matter of there's nowhere else to go, right? You, know, well, you, you have at, to live in a 500 square foot place because you can't afford anything else. Well, it's yeah. density and cost, and this yeah. comes back around to affordability and multiples. So to live in those areas costs a lot of money. First of all, there's not a lot of space. You have density that is way off the chart compared to what we see in any market in Canada. Not sure we necessarily want to get there. Um, cities of, of 25 and, and, and more million are, are, are a different ball game than Toronto at six. Mm-hmm. But having said that, it is a factor. And as we increase immigration and more people come from these areas of the world and their expectations are driven from what they knew, Query what that does in terms of their expectations of what they're willing to pay for what's available. And when they come here, and for those of us that might be having grown up in a 2,000 or 2,500 or 3,000 square foot home, looking at the prospect of, say, a two-bedroom condo at six or 700 square feet, for them it's luxury. For us, we're looking at it like that's a closet. Yeah. I don't know how this turns out, but I, I suspect there's a social shift, right? Where you know, I, I know this just, just personally talking with my wife and we're you know with family on the way and, and discussing the benefits of I, mean, I can move to Milton and get that 2,500 square foot house and commute an hour and a half each way and sit in traffic, or I can bite the bullet, you know, move into that two bedroom, 600 square foot condo, but then be able to walk to work, have access to the downtown living. You know, there, there are trade-offs, right? And it's, it depends. If I can break that mold, if I can get out of the, the sort of maybe it's the Canadian, Australian, U.S. mind frame of needing that big house with the big backyard and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I don't know. I don't know if the if our, the, our Western minds will allow us to change or if it will happen organically. Well, you know what? It's interesting because there's a whole bunch of issues that sort of come out of what you just said. And it's something that I think we are going to start to see a little bit more of. And the whole notion of live, work, play, um, and actually more recently we've heard it in the context of live, work, play, learn, Mm -hmm. and people wanting 
a little bit more out of their communities. And that's one of the other things that we see that, that comes out in this report is in, you know, when we talk about mixed use, which has been a feature in, in development in, in Canada and in particular in the major markets of Vancouver and Toronto, you know, mixed use developments, you know, mixed use used to be talked about in the context of, you know, you build a condo and make sure that there's a little bit of retail on the bottom. Well, it's expanded and has become a lot more schools, around school, building a complete grocery neighborhood. stores. Yeah. You want to create you want to create a neighborhood or a more complete community because people want the ability to have those amenities close by. They don't want it, particularly the younger generation. They don't want to drive. They, they want to be able to walk to work or take transit to work and not have to deal with the same issues around commuting that that many of us have dealt with for years. Having said that, there is still a cohort that is driving until they qualify and finding as you described instead of living you know in in a more expensive area driving a little further out and making that trade-off and so when we take a look at what's happened with public infrastructure and happening with public Mm -hmm. infrastructure around around transportation um, it's going to facilitate that now overlay other concepts um, that we've been talking about and starting to write about over the last year year and a half around some of the other technology disruptors for example autonomous automobiles yeah. What is that How does that change traffic, traffic flow, traffic yeah, commute, flow, commuting it, time? It, cha- yeah. it changes your whole notion of commuting. It changes mm-hmm. your whole notion of um, what you're able to do. And again, if you overlay yet another developing or emerging issue around the use of office space. Absolutely. And, and, and sort of look at the way that has changed over the last number of years, where we're into a much more open concept, more collaborative space, less structure. Um, flexibility is, is a big thing. And, you know, with businesses and, and people looking for more flexibility in their working arrangements, so they're teleworking, mm-hmm. um, they're using technology to work in place. And what does that mean for the design of communities? What does it mean for the design of homes when you look at all of these things? I mean, you can just take a look at what's happened with uh, condo development over the last number of years and the number of parking spaces that were uh, considered to be needed or in an office development, the number of parking spaces that were needed several years ago versus today and tomorrow. And the amenities that are being are being requested and demanded around connectivity, around um, places for bike storage, and being able to sort of have showers and so on. We brought this up before, but we had a, we, one of our uh, developers that, that we had on the show uh, was talking about the highest demanded amenity to currently is uh, indoor dog washing stations, <laughs> right. which wasn't even a concept 15 years yeah, ago. But right. uh, but it, yeah, they know that, that you put that in there, and and it's much easier to sell condos, or you know, I'm not sure exactly how they they value it, right? But to your yeah. point, it's a, it's a constantly evolving. Uh, That's right, and we're seeing condos built with zero parking, which we've discussed in the past as well. Mm-hmm. It's a definitely a game changer. It actually, makes it makes developers' performers work a little better because if you exclude parking, you're taking a very expensive line item off of your off your budget. That's now right. maybe your property works where before it wouldn't. You well, and if that. you cycle forward and think about what it might mean, and you look at the investment that's being made by very large players in technology around automation, whether it's whether it's uh, uh, you know marrying up a concept like Uber with uh, uh, with autonomous automobiles, you know you start to have to raise some questions or at least think about the art of the possible looking forward. How many people are actually going to own cars, or who are going to own the cars in five, ten years time? What does that mean in the context of uh, where you live, how you move around? It also has impact for, um, I think, the policymakers should be thinking about what that means in, in the context of uh, public infrastructure around transportation. If you think about mobility rather than just simply trans- transit, and think about getting people from A to B, you have a much broader spectrum to work with when you have an autonomous automobile and, and other mechanisms for moving people around. 
what does that mean in terms of a house? What does it mean, you know, when you're looking at housing design? Do you need garages anymore? Yeah. What about long you know, three car driveways? Driveways. Yeah. Uh, think about it in the context of a, of a mall and the amount of parking, parking that, that is need. devoted yeah. in a mall context. Well, if you don't need that parking now, that liberates a lot of other opportunities. Absolutely. And it really addresses the you know drive till you can afford it. Uh, Toronto has a particular problem with that because you have to drive a very long distance before houses get affordable. You can be 35 minutes from downtown and still paying $1.3 million for a home. But of course, if you bring in you know faster transportation routes, you don't mind going to Milton or North Milton or North Caledon. You know, these are all areas that are currently an hour drive from Toronto with even moderate Without traffic. Without traffic, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. There's, there's, And again, looking a little bit to our neighbors to the south, um, there's a concept that we started writing about and talking about a couple of years ago called the 18-hour city. And it sort of embodies a lot of what this discussion has been sort of dealing with. You think about major centers like San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, and the cost of living in those centers. And I think you've seen a large number of people, particularly the younger folks, looking at this and saying, I can't afford to live here. It's getting around is trouble and making the conscious decision to say, I'm going to go somewhere else. And so they've gone to secondary cities. And those cities have started to attract their own sort of uh, core of these folks. And the employers, some, especially the, what the quote, cool employers, following them because typically business will go where they can get the their, their target employment aud- or employee audience from mm-hmm. and locating there or at least using technology to make it possible for them to live from there and this has become a thing over the last few couple Google of years. and Kitchener is probably the easiest example. Exactly, exactly. And this is happening. And if you take a look at the U.S., and I know we're talking primarily about Canada, but you know, you look at sort of this, the markets to watch in the U.S., and there's a very large proportion of them that would fall into that category of 18-hour cities because they are attracting population growth, and it's people that are making, making positive decisions to stay away from these unaffordable areas, these high congestion areas. And it's not that they're rejecting urban, urbanization. They just want urbanization in a different context. And now you see the growth in these other markets. I suspect we're going to see similar things happening in Canada. I don't think, I mean, our market is not as, as, as vast and as concentrated as the U.S., but you raise the example of Google and KW. That's one example. Rising other markets um, where, you know, people are looking at better quality of life. It's still urban um, and they still want the same amenities, but you're not going to get to a 24-hour gateway status like you have in Vancouver and Toronto. So in the U.S. experience, that's where they've said it's more of an 18-hour city. So you still have culture. You still have, you know, the entertainment um, and the things that are bringing people together uh, and sort of outside of business hours. But it's not quite in the same category as the major centers. It's not a 24-hour city, I guess, is the concept. Um, jumping a little bit, you know, I, I wanted to touch on some of the other um, some of the other cities that were mentioned in the report, and, and you know, maybe I'll, I'll throw this back to you, Chris. You know, uh, you, you covered sort of Saskatoon, Winnipeg, Montreal, Halifax. Was there any city in particular um, that kind of jumped out as as interesting, or there was there results from the survey from those particular experts from those particular neighborhoods that that surprised you? One that that kind of stood out to me was um, the the self uh, self reflection on on the the strength of the marketplace in Winnipeg. They had a pretty high um, pretty high belief that they were they had a strong market right now, and it, that kind of surprised me. But maybe it shouldn't. But just to clarify, this is Winnipeggers' belief in Winnipeg. Correct, but yeah. uh, they, in the context of what is what Torontonians believe about Toronto and Vancouverites believe about Vancouver and Winnipeg was was right up there as 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 one of the most optimistic. 
Yeah, I think that, um, and, and you know what, it's an interesting barometer um, when you sort of get a reflection of the people that are in that market and how they see their prospects. Um, Winnipeg is in the center of Canada. Um, it's not got the same population growth, but there's a lot of good things going on out there, and we've seen that over the last couple of years, and I think that that's what's reflected. All right, well, let's let's move on to um, something else that I found really interesting in, in the report. You know, there's this one section where you had asked some of the experts about their, their belief in prospects and sort of subsectors in 2017, and maybe not surprisingly at the top of both, whether it's an investment prospect or development prospects were uh, fulfillment uh, fulfillment opportunities, and and you know, I'm curious how how this this research kind of overlaid the you know the the retail and what's going on in retail, and you know, fulfillment. I I kind of was like, well, I'm not really sure what that meant when I first saw this. I was like, okay, wait, no, I get that. This is sort of almost a new sector in real estate, or or newish, just so to speak. Yeah, no, it it, it is very interesting, and and it does it does dovetail or cross over with what's happening in retail. Uh, I think we would all recognize retail is at a bit of a crossroads. Um, if you think about um, the retail landscape, um, you know, and it has done well, urbanization has provided opportunities and we still see opportunities in the major centers for high street retail, for example, you know, those areas like Bloor, West of Young, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, you've got a concentration and you're going to, it's going to drive traffic, um, grocery anchored retail, um, especially well situate um, around, around the city is, is going to continue to do well. Do you think well. that malls are, are relatively safe still? Well, mall, malls are an area where, again, you're, you're, there's an evolution and that's where I think there's a, there's a greater crossover. Uh, it is changing. Um, they're doing a great job of making that change mm-hmm. too. For the yeah. most part, malls are adapting. Well, and they've had to, and 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 so there's a whole narrative on that, and I think it's in it, it is covered in the report, and I think that there's a broader discussion around that, and that's sort of where the crossover comes in on fulfillment and industrial, uh, and the new format industrial. Uh, you you you've got malls that have had to re- reinvent themselves. You know, the rise of e-commerce and online shopping has really changed what's going on in the malls, and I think the mall owners and the tenants have come together. It's almost a new partnership, and there's a new buzzword that I think is evolving retailtainment and the need to have malls become a real destination that goes beyond sort of the traditional fashion and, and sort of commodity purchases. And, and I think they are, it is evolving and they are doing a good job. The crossover with e-commerce is also coming into play where you're now focusing on, all right, we're going to sell this stuff online. How do we get it to the end consumer? So logistics and being able to store goods and Fulfill so that's full, that's the fulfillment and is being able to is to actually uh, fill these orders and get them delivered. So a lot of discussion around last mile delivery. Um, I mean everybody's seen over the last year um, discussions by certain groups around using drone technology, for example, for delivery. Um, but dealing with the changing face of retail, big box, and how much of it is warehousing, you know, to be used for fulfillment versus actual display. Uh, display space and and what sizes do we need now and how do we sort of backfill some of the retailers that have exited over the last couple of years um, and what is the new format looking at and so there's a lot of uncertainty as it's evolving but it is crossing over with that space around fulfillment and warehousing and logistics. Do you think the um, do you think that the adage that you know retail is dying is maybe a little overdone? Yeah, I don't think that um, I, I don't think that that's an accurate way to put it at all, and I don't think that the industry looks at it that way. It's changing, yeah. And I think that there are certain uh, you know certain formats are going to need to continue to evolve, and I think you know we are seeing more of a partnership between tenants and landlords that say, hey, how are we going to drive traffic? How are we going to turn this into a destination that is going to continue to stay relevant and meet the needs of the people around it? Down in uh, down in the states, I know that they are actually seeing some die off in malls. 
obviously not here so much uh, so much in Canada. The environment in the states is very different. Um, you know, I, I think if I had to characterize it, you know, and, and obviously being careful, I think that our industry has been a little bit more diligent, a little bit more disciplined in terms of building. Um, vacancy rates in, in most of our asset categories are very different in Canada versus the U.S. where, you know, every 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 opportunity, you know, you, you just build something. And I think that's been true in, in the retail environment. It's funny, uh, coming out of the, the, the financial crisis, um, it wasn't, it really wasn't fun, but, you know, there was a, there was a, there was a website called deadmalls.com, you know, that, that, that essentially uh, just, just showed these just yeah, tumbleweeds yeah, uh, exactly. rolling through the malls. And, yeah. and that didn't happen in Canada. And, and to be honest, I don't think that's going to happen in Canada. I mean, by every measure, I think that uh, uh, the retail landscape in Canada is not in the same category as is in the States. And I, I certainly didn't hear anything from the industry that would suggest that there's, that there's any feeling that it's going that way. Um, but it is changing and e-commerce is changing things. And it's meaning that, uh, that malls have to have to reinvent themselves and the landlords and the tenants have to come together and think about what kind of an environment they want to create and how they're going to uh, drive people to come into those malls. Um, let's face it, mall, malls, will, malls are, are a gathering place. People still like to come together as much as they will do, um, you know, probably a growing amount of their purchases online. Um, we are social animals and people like people, to come you, together. People watching. You can just go and wander around. You don't need to buy anything. Right? Absolutely. It's still entertaining. Absolutely. Right? And I think that that's where we're seeing the change. Um, you know, the retail landscape is becoming more around retailtainment. They're bringing yeah. together theaters, gyms, and, and, you know, food, a lot of it around food so that people can have experiences together. And that's it's interesting. That's reflected as I'm, as I'm going through this this one chart that we, that we started this conversation off at the very bottom of these um, this, this response from this survey as far as, you know, prospects for development and investment, the very bottom of the report of the of the, the scale are power centers. And I think that's, that goes you know, specific to what you're talking about, right? It's it's a very different environment in a power center than a mall, even Absolutely. though they may have the same may have the same product, but it's just a totally different experience. Right, it is a very different experience, and I mean, power centers is. Uh you know, it, it, nobody's nobody's saying that they're that they're dead. Right. Um, I think it's a matter, though, that a number of them are having to retool, especially with some of the retailers that have vacated over the last few years. Uh, and that space, you know, that very large box now having to be carved up and and reformatted for uh, people that want much smaller spaces. A specific example here, where there's a, a sport check and a power center across the street from a major mall in Toronto, and that sport check has left the the, the power center and moved into the mall. And I think they just. I'm sure their sales are way up now. Right? Try to try to blend in a little more to the neighborhood versus the destination. Power yeah, center. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you, Chris, about um, it's real estate business prospects. So it's this is how market participants where they see the best prospects for themselves. The top two are real estate owners and residential builders and developers. That of course makes perfect sense. But in a selfish note, I wanted to ask. Why real estate lenders are second from the bottom in terms of you know prospects we have of doing business this year? I thought you know it'd be a great year last year, and we hope to have a great year this year. Uh, do you know what's driving that uh, that downward pressure on uh, our prospects? Before you say anything, I, I I know the answer, and this is this is the distinction between Adam and I, right? Because I sit on the credit side, and he sits on the sales side. So I think by by vert, by by instinct, lenders are just typically a little bit more pessimistic market participants, but. Uh, and sale guys are yeah, optimistic. Chris, yeah, Chris, sale guys are optimistic. Yeah, well, Chris, what do you think? So, so being mindful of my audience and and, 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 and my hosts, um, I will uh, uh, I'll endeavor to take a stab at this. So, I guess I would make a couple of observations. First of all, 
it sounds kind of dramatic when you say that it's the second worst category. But if you really take a look at it, the difference between the top categories and the bottom categories is actually very is very thin. You're not talking about something that's sort of dramatically different in prospects. And I think what you what 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 the bigger story here is really is that all of the categories show a bit of a pullback from 2016. That uh, not that they think that the prospects are bad. Um, but there's not as much optimism or good feeling about the prospects in 2016 as there was in 2016. And I think that that's reflective in the overall view in the report, which is, you know what, we see opportunities, but there is some caution. We're aware of what's going on around us. And certainly from the lending side, and, and your comment on the on the credit on the credit side is 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 I think very um, very relevant. We say no for a living. Well, yeah, well, exactly. And, and I think the credit committees are taking more of a role. Affordability is an issue. The market is long, and I think people are very aware um, that they're that the risk the risk profile is a little bit different, and they're being more cautious. And so, um, seeing interest rates where they are, seeing the wall of capital that's available um, in in virtually all centers. So there, there's a lot more. Ca- there's a lot of capital available um, that's from, unbelievable. The, from the established okay. lenders. From, it's a tsunami from, of capital. Well, right? it's, exactly. It's, it's insane. And, and so, what does that mean? That means that there's pressure on there's pressure on on spreads and margins. And so if you it doesn't I don't think it's difficult to read the tea leaves and say when you put all that together, you're probably not going to have the same degree of profitability um, this year, perhaps as last or maybe there's going to be some pressures. You know, there's a lot of competition. There's a lot of stuff that is is creating some uncertainty. And I think that it's just recognizing that. But again, I, I would point out that there's not a large divergence between sort of the most optimistic categories and, 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 uh, and the lenders and, and so on. Yeah, that, that is a very valid point. I was indulging in a bit of, I guess, hyperbole, but... Uh, <laughs> just awfulizing, that's all. Yeah. It's okay, you're allowed. <laughs> was there anything in the report um, that really you know, made you think in terms of you didn't expect to see uh, that result? I mean, obviously, you're, you're out surveying the market, but you must have some preconceived notions going in about how you think the market's going to respond because you're, you're, you're working in it every day. So was there anything that really stood out to you as an unexpected result in everything you reviewed? You know what? For the most part, I would say that the report is uh, is is not real. There was nothing that really jumped out as as being unexpected or wow, I didn't see that coming. Um, the evolution among the sectors. Um, you know, I think that this question was asked me a couple of years ago when we really started to see a lot of movement in sort of the rise of the permanent renter, and and that was different. A lot more interest in in sort of purpose built uh, purpose built uh, uh, multi res. Um, and we've seen that continue to evolve. One of the best bets this year is, and multi-res is always in that category, but looking at seniors housing, for example, mm-hmm. and moving along that spectrum, I guess one of the things that I thought maybe um, needs to have a little bit more attention, and I would have thought would have come up, is is an area like, and it's in the alternative class around uh, student housing. Now, it really is sort of a niche area of multi-res if you really think about it. But in the same way that we're looking at opportunities and more focus on things like seniors housing um, and the expansion of what seniors housing is, you know, it used to be really focused on long-term care. Um, now you're seeing seniors lifestyle living. Um, in the same token, and when you look at some of the, the markets across the country, um, student housing is one that sort of, I wonder if it isn't going to start to attract a little more attention. And you had mentioned, sorry, before we, before we started recording, you mentioned that there's a distinction, uh, a drastic distinction, or, or at least a major distinction between Canada's approach to student housing and the American approach to student housing. 
you want to comment about just the differences that you've seen? Well, I, I think that there's there there's a lot more um, there's a lot more sort of market, and certainly on the public side, um, there are public entities that are focused on student housing. Whereas if you look at our REIT space, um, there really isn't sort of there's lots of different. Niches there's a and skepticism verticals. in the market, as far as I'm concerned. I, I just you know go, going across the board, I don't know very many people that are saying you know I'm I'm going out of apartments, I'm going into student housing, or or, or whatever the case may be, right? Or people that don't really understand it, they'll go there because of the yield, and then realize that the work involved is. Well, and I think that's right, but there are players. If you look around the world, there are other players that that have done student housing, and they, you know, it it, it is a specialized business in the same way that multi-res is a specialized Mm -hmm. business. If you don't know what you're doing, you're going to lose a lot of money. Um, And and yeah, this is a sort of a different sector, but you know, we have some world-class institutions across this country, and and you know, student housing has been uh, an issue that's been of concern to them, and it's been sort of addressed in in more of a piecemeal way, but I just wonder if there isn't an opportunity at some point for that to uh, move to the next level. Just uh, just a side note in student housing, I sat through a presentation maybe two years ago on this exact topic, and there's a bunch of Americans there talking about what they're doing down in the States, and it's basically an amenity war between the buildings, and the one that really stood out to me as an example was a building, obviously in the southern part of the States, that had a quad that contained a lazy river. And a movie viewing screen, so on wow. Saturday nights you could jump inside an inner tube, float around a lazy river while watching a movie, just so that you would move into their building for the year while you attended whatever university it was. Wow. Yeah. Not but, sure I see that happening in our marketplace <laughs> anytime soon. The skating rink. You can skate around and watch a go. movie. That's yeah. more likely in Canada. Yeah. 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 And they think back, and you know, everybody thinks back to the, what they lived in in terms of uh, their student housing experience, and it was mostly houses chopped up into units and zero capex for 20 years and that's right yeah yeah peering through the walls because there's holes in the wall that haven't been filled in years yeah, yeah. i think we've, we've got to move on chris this has been great thank you very much for for coming and, and sharing your thoughts and, and again i encourage everybody that's listening to go to our website and and, and uh, download the the report it's very very interesting yeah and uh, you know once again the uh, the ottawa presentation is coming up we'll have details of that on the website as well uh, I want something we do with our guests when they come on. This is actually new for 2017. Last year, the question we always had for uh, our guests was, you know, what's uh, what was your best day and worst day in real estate? Our 27 question, 2017 question is, what two pieces of advice would you give yourself if you could go back to uh, you in 1985? 1985. Yeah. yeah, fresh face <laughs> walking in the front. What door. do you know? Yeah, what do you know uh, now that you wish you knew then? Oh boy. Um, okay, so I guess the first thing I would say is don't ever step away from an exercise regime and build yoga into it <laughs> has nothing to do with business no, but has everything I like to it no that's, that's yeah. what we're looking for yeah. and, and the other thing on real estate that I would have said and, and specifically looking at this is I wish I had bought a lot more then <laughs> yeah. good answer yeah the business plan for the last kind of 20 years is buy hold profit and that's that's it in a nutshell <laughs> exactly I have a. I think I've told this story a couple of times now, but my parents in 1990 were looking to buy a condo. At the time, they thought, you know what? I just don't see the market ever increasing beyond this. You know, there's no point buying at the top of the market. Um, they're, they're still kicking themselves for it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that going around. Yeah, <laughs> we've got um, two things to discuss from the news, and this story actually wasn't pre-planned at all. But you know, towards the tail end of our conversation here, we got into uh, retail, and so this is. Uh, just came out on the Real Estate News Exchange. It is since Target's departure in 2015, Rio Can has entered into agreements to uh, advance discussions on 47 leases that, when completed, will replace approximately 122% of the revenue lost. 
from the major retailers wow. exit. So who, do they say who the retailers are that they're in negotiations with? Yeah, the list here includes Costco, Lowe's, Canadian Tire, TJX brands, which I don't know, but they've got here that's highlighted as Winners, Marshalls, HomeSense, PetSmart, SportCheck, Staples, and Michaels. Oh, so it's all over. It's just all across the board. Yeah, good for them. Yeah. No, that's great. One hundred twenty-two percent covering the yield, so they're actually making money at, at the end of the day. Yeah, well, I mean it, they've lost a, the money, but they'll have better returns in the long run. It actually addresses that as well. There's one hundred thirty-seven million in uh, tenant fit out they need to do. Uh, but that was covered in the eighty-eight million recovered from uh, from Target. Yeah, of course. So they they had the indemnity from the uh, Target yeah, USA, right, right. whereas a lot of other uh, landlords might not have. So a different, maybe a different story for other parts of the parts of uh, you know, the landlord spectrum. Yeah, the loss of Target. Yeah, and the other one, of course, is our top three tweets from the Toronto Real Estate Forum. Uh, we didn't do them on the last episode, so this is you know a little stale information because, of course, that was the beginning of of December. Uh, the first one's from at CBRE Canada. It's Mayor John Tory speaking at Toronto Real Estate Forum. The Toronto Portlands are the biggest development opportunity in North America. I believe we talked about them before, but in this case, we have not. It is an area just east of downtown Toronto, highly, highly polluted from unchecked manufacturing and uh, yeah, for a hundred for a century, yeah, yeah. But it's a massive, massive swath of land. It virtually abuts the downtown. Uh, the of course, the big uh, the big risk there is environmental cost for that's been slowing down remediation sales for, yeah. yeah for years. Uh, the city does need to step in at some point and address that because the private sector likely won't. The second one is from Big Ben Myers. He's from Fortress Real Developments. It's at Ben Myers twenty nine. The new normal is low interest rates. Don't expect that to change in Canada. We are turning Japanese, says Benjamin Tall of CIBC. But of course, that's appropriate then, for our emerging trends topic today, yeah. right? Yeah. Sort of dovetails what we talked about yeah. with interest rates earlier, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Even though they have risen, risen by 30 basis points as we discussed <laughs> yeah. at the top, yeah. but uh, we'll see. The third one is from the Real Estate News Exchange, it's at RENXCA. Michael Emery, Allied Property, says there are two cap rates existing buildings and development land. Land cap rates dropping fast. That's actually something else we talked about, of course, that a lot of players now are chasing development yields just to juice up their overall portfolio performance. But he's saying that they might be getting tighter now. That might not be an option. So it'll be interesting to see going forward into 2017 where people are going to find uh, find yield. Well, I think anytime you have uh, a lot of capital chasing yield, um, that yield is only going one one direction. Yeah, yeah, they're not working together, right? So, you know, we've we've seen it. We've talked about it before. The 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 demand or the the uh, the number of players entering that market trying to buy land for development purposes has just skyrocketed. And you're seeing a lot more transactions in the marketplace than you had in the past. Yeah. And, and, you know, we see it, you know, as lenders, we see, you know, uh, groups of landlords that, you know, have owned their, you know, one store retail with apartment building uh, for 20 years. And there's six of them side by side by side that are all coming in. Now they're these developers that own land that, you know, they paid $300,000 for it 25 years ago. Now it's worth 40 million, right? And they're trying to, trying to get into the market. And that's, you know, it's it's a recipe for some kind of you know challenge, I think, in the marketplace. Goes back to your uh, 1985 comment: buy land downtown would be a great. Well, choice. I mean, if you take a look at it, and going back to the discussion on supply, um, and also overlaying the government's uh, uh, the government and the both local and provincial government policies towards intensification, um, and the green belt in the GTA context. Uh, Looking for those infill opportunities and redevelopments, whether it's sort of that old strip mall that's in, a, in an area that's gentrifying and you now have uh, other opportunities or old industrial in certain areas of the city, um, 
th- those opportunities are going to be there. Um, taking a look at old old sort of old format malls that have been around since the fifties and sixties um, that have huge land plates um, in the middle of a in the middle of the city uh, and 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 sort of the art of the possible. Um, the values are there and certainly the demand and there's just not that many opportunities for reasonably large tracts of land for development now. I want to thank Chris for coming in today. It's been super informative. I love the report. I love, you know, love the presentation. Once again, if anybody's in the Ottawa area and wants to see it uh, live, that's coming up uh, in February. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes um, if you enjoyed it today. You know, please, please tell a friend. And that's, uh, that's all for this one. Thanks for listening, guys. Thanks for coming, Chris. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.